Welcome to another episode of Records Revisited, a podcast dedicated to the magic of music. I'm your DJ, your MC, the host on the East Coast. I'm Ben Montgomery. Joining me is the man who is a hungry shark up from the bottom for another bite. He's the hot rod heart tonight and my co-host from the left coast. Here's Wayne Fugate. Hola, Ben. I mean, that's great. That's my favorite Robbie Dupree song you referenced there. <laughs> Absolutely. Mine too. All right. So for this episode, we have a special guest. Wayne already uh, spilled the beans, so he's best remembered for that one other song, and we might talk about it. But he's been turning out music for the last four decades. Please welcome to the podcast, Robbie Dupree. Good morning. How are you today? We are fantastic. Good. So premise of our podcast is fairly simple. We talk about music, but as we do at the beginning of each podcast, I ask the all-important question. So Wayne, we're going to start with you. What t-shirt are you wearing today? I'm wearing a, uh, a wonderful Led Zeppelin t-shirt. All right. Which, uh, which, which one? Uh, yeah, just a Hot Topic one. It's It's got okay. kind of a little bit of the first album cover. It's got the four symbols in each of the corners. Just a, okay. just a g- generic Hot Topic Led Zeppelin shirt. Perfect. All right. How about you, Robbie? What t-shirt are you wearing? Well, I um, managed to find a t-shirt with something written on it. And uh, <laughs> it was from quite a few years ago at the Cotton Club in uh, Tokyo. Nice. Gotcha. Very cool. And I think we're going to talk about Japan during the course of uh, our conversation, right? Okay. And uh, I'm wearing my Keith Hernandez uh, faux New York Mets jersey shirt because it should be baseball season and I am really missing baseball right about now. Wow. So it has nothing to do, nothing to do with music at all, but... Uh, it's your political statement. I guess maybe, yeah. <laughs> now, now you live you live in New York. Correct? I live in New York, correct. So, are you a Mets or a Yankees fan, or don't care? I uh, don't care about baseball. Okay, I, I have other sports that I love, but baseball. When I was a little kid, the Dodgers left Brooklyn, and that was it for me. Oh, okay. So, what sports do you uh, do you root for? I'm a boxing fan. I'm a football fan. Okay, um, in particular, those two. Watching any of the draft? I did watch a little bit of it. You know, I, it it's fallen in a bad time because I've been really busy doing some recording here at the house, and I just haven't been able to keep up with what time things are on. But I think it's going to be an exciting year, especially because nothing to do with the draft, but just with all the events happening in Tampa. You know. Oh. That's yeah. that's a, that's the news story. No matter what happens in the draft. Right, right. Yeah, Gronk going Tampa. I know there's I since I live down here in Florida, there's a lot of people excited about uh about Tom and Gronk being down here. Sure. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't look, I don't care. But it's uh, but it's news, you know, and sports yes. sports needs news or it doesn't happen, you know. <laughs> that is true. Yeah, I have not been paying much attention to to sports because I've been so I've been binge watching the newsroom. Huh. <laughs> we 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 talked about that on uh, another episode. We had one of the actors from from the newsroom on an episode, and so um, since I was doing research on him, I started watching the newsroom. Found out that uh, uh, it's on Amazon Prime now, so I don't have to pay for it. Oh, great, uh, great! And uh, now I'm stuck and. 
that's that's what I've been doing with my t- my extra time is uh, binge watching instead of preparing for um, some future podcast episodes that I probably should be preparing for. So, um, so I, I so I mentioned I mentioned in the uh, the intro that uh, uh, there's that one song. I'm I'm sure you're tired of talking about Steal Away, right? You, yeah, I mean, there's. <laughs> You've been talking about it for 40 years, you know, it's a long time, but I mean, I, I, I don't, I'm always grateful because it was because of that song that I have a career. And, um, and so I, I never refuse to talk about the song or anything about it, but yeah, I'm tired of talking about it. <laughs> but, but has anybody in the, like the last decade asked you anything new or original about the song? I mean, as a question about the song been yes. new? No. Yes, it's the same right. old, you know, it's the same old, was it about a girl that you knew or what, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. It's, you know, it's hard for the, I think the interviewer it's difficult for it too, because it's not like it's groundbreaking, you know, it's a little pop love song, you know, there's not really right. a whole lot that you can go into. It's, and, um, but yet, like I said, you know, it's it's um, a song that while I've tired of it, every time I perform live and I perform it, I realize that uh, it really does belong to the public that made it a hit, you know. And and um, it's it's kind of like a, a, a gleeful responsibility to to play it for them. You know, it's like going to a high school reunion that you kind of dread. And then when you get there, you're glad you went, you know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I'm only going to bring up that song one other time, and we'll I'll, I'll bring that up here in a couple moments. Um, so I, I had to throw out the the lyrics for Hot Rod Hearts mm-hmm. in the, the intro for Wayne because that's that's my Robbie Dupree jam. Right cool. There. Cool. Um, so one thing that I didn't didn't know until I started uh, doing some research on you, there is a Spotify. Uh, or I'm sorry, there is a Spanish version of that of that debut or the self-titled record. Correct. Where so where, what's what's the story on that? Well, it's a long story, and I'll try to tidy it up. Okay. Um, after the first album came out, I moved to California. I had been living there for a while during the making of it. And then when it when it hit, I came to California. In the place I lived, there was a man named Jose Silva, and he was um, from Chile, and he was a producer. And in the conversation, you know, his family and my family were like kind of mixing. And then uh, he said, "What do you think about recording Steal Away in Spanish? It's already a hit down there." And in South America, I'm speaking about. So I, I said, I, I think it's a good idea. I mean, I don't speak Spanish. He said, no problem. My wife is an interpreter and she can really do a good job and giving you good lyrics for it. And, um, and, and you'll just use the same track. So long drawn out week ahead of talking at the record label and they, they authorized the budget. And then the guy who signed me said, why don't we just do the whole album? And that was because those were the days when 
that kind of a thing was possible. It wasn't corporate. You know, this was a guy in his office smoking a joint, you know, and making deals. So right. we um, we went in and had and I sang it phonetically. I think on some songs I did a pretty good job and on other songs probably not so good. And um, and then I got to go to Chile to do a couple of shows and a big television show. And what was the surprise was after really studying for a long time to be able to sing these songs in Spanish, when I got there, the director of the show said, oh, no, no. We don't want them in Spanish. We want them in English. <laughs> so that was kind of the story of um, of that project. You know, it was fun to do, and it got a little juice, you know, here and there. Spanish? Me? No, not a not a word. <laughs> so the, so that was that was really just a learning experience for you then. It was, but you know, it was like a mel- it, it all depends on how good the translation is and how yeah. you know because there are a lot of colloquial phrases that do not exist in in Spanish, like yeah. steal away. That doesn't right. mean a thing, you know. So um, this woman who did who did all of the work, she came up with the title Navigamos, which means, as you could guess, like sail away. And um, and so the song kind of became sail away. And some of the songs fit perfectly. Some of the songs were harder. Hot Rod Hearts. There's no such de amor. That's autos de amor, right? Yes, and. Love it. You know what I mean? That's just the way it rolled. And, and we had a lot of fun with it. And we and we got a couple of people at the label. I had this this dream to do this company called Latin Connection. And it was going to be getting stars to do their single. And so we got the Pointer Sisters to do He's So Shy. And we got um, Jermaine Jackson to do Let's Get Serious. But, you know, the same thing. Nobody really cared one way or the other. We were we were 25 years ahead of any kind of Latin explosion in America. You know what I mean? Right, right. Yeah. So so the whole reason why um, I invited you was, uh, so I've been on a vinyl obsession for the last couple of years where um, if I go to a record store, I always have to come out with... Um, you know, an armful of, of records. And I love going through the, uh, the, the bargain bins. And I found a really clean copy of your record. Um, the, the, the second record, the street corner heroes uh-huh. from 1981. And I, I don't think I ever heard a song off of it, right? but I absolutely fell in love with the entire record. Oh, that's great. Well, there's a story about that, why you never heard it, too. 
I bet. So that that was the next question I was going to ask was, uh, I think that there was at least one or two singles off of that record, but why did we not hear this on the radio? Well, as you know, the, the first album um, was all over the charts from like April till October. You know, it was a really, really successful debut. And we went fast to work on the Street Corner Heroes album. And um, it came out, but it just as it came out, it was out about a week or so. And the whole Warner Electra Asylum um, Corporation was forced to give up independent radio promotion. Mm. And to people that don't know what that means, there were independent payola. It was like payola and every record, every record got, got, had to have some degree of it. And I don't care what it is. That's, that's what happened. But when they dropped it, it happened right then at the debut of that record, when one single had just started to chart and, um, and it was terrible, you know, it was a real drop, you know, like, and from that point on, uh, things changed dramatically for me and a lot of other people. And probably two, three months later, I got dropped from the label. And it was un- it was unusual after having such big um, record success, you know, to get dropped. Yeah. But that's the business of what was going down at the time. It turned out that there was a big RICO investigation going on of like payola and corruption, et cetera. And everybody had to pull in. And some people got caught up in it and some people didn't. Probably six months later or so, they were back at it, you know, got to figure a way to do it. But that was the reason why that record just wound up in the dump. Yeah. Actually, I I, I take that back. I did know Brooklyn Girls, but only because – so I'm, I'm a big fan of Yacht Rock. Uh-huh. And and I listened religiously to the Yacht Rock, the Beyond Yacht Rock podcast. Got it. So this is this is the the, the guys who essentially coined the term, and mm-hmm. you know, there's been all sorts of people since then who have kind of run with it. I know uh, Sirius XM every couple months will bring back their Yacht Rock channel, and I think uh, yeah, Memorial Day to Labor Day. Yeah. So did did I read correctly that you've actually done some stuff with uh, the Yacht Rock Review? Absolutely. Yeah. So I knew Brooklyn Girls because they would do episodes where they would rate how high a song was considered, quote unquote, Yacht Rock. And um, so Brooklyn Girls actually scored the highest out of all of your all of your songs. So th- I I. <laughs> This was my research uh, from a couple nights ago. So they gave, out of 100 points, they gave Brooklyn Girls an 88.25. She dreams about the lights across the Dances in the dark while the
So that was your that was your highest. They scored four four different songs over the course of their podcast. Steal Away was 85. Hot Rod Hearts was an 83.5. And then they also did Love is a Mystery. That's also from the first record. Um, they gave that a 71.25. How nice of them. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, well, that's what I mean. That stuff is all, you know, BS anyway. But they're nice guys. I met them. They came to a couple of the uh, Yacht Rock shows. And I got turned on to the Yacht Rock Review out of Atlanta by Brian Ray, who was on those early records with me and is now um, – bass and guitar player with Paul McCartney for the past 18 years or whatever. And he went on a cruise. I forget what rock cruise it was. And he called me when he got off the boat and he said, man, you got to hear this group. They're amazing. And they love your stuff. And, and he said, I gave me a number and they called me and they asked me to come down. At this point they were unknown. And, and I um, went down to a club called the canal room in New York. And, uh, and I sat in with them and they were spot on, like great, nice guys, terrific vocals, great playing. And, um, just conversations went on and I asked them if they wanted me to bring any of my other friends from that period. And that's how a lot of that began, you know, all, all the different people from, from player and Ambrosia and, you know, I can't even remember everybody else I brought on board, but a lot of people. And and so, you know, we've had a lot of a lot of fun over the years doing special shows. And then they grew and grew, and now they're with um, Live Nation, and Sirius had them on a tour up until the virus came. And they're drawing like, you know, three, 5,000 people a night. Yeah. Quite amazing. And – I know that they're talented. I've I've not seen them live yet, but I but I know every time they come to Orlando, they're you know they're they they do pretty well uh, packing the House of Blues or mm-hmm. the hard the Hard Rock here. Um, the the one thing that the the Yacht Rock podcast guys they would kind of give them a little bit of crap because of course not not all of the songs are quote unquote Yacht Rock in their estimation but it's still the period pieces from yeah. you know that sweet spot of of you know mid 70s to early early 80s um and the one thing with the the Yacht Rock podcast guys is they were always they would always look at the the personnel that uh, appeared on some of the some of the songs that they would score, and like I'm looking at the personnel for for your um, for your second record and Bill of Bounty, who is kind of like yacht rock royalty, is mm-hmm. he wrote a number of songs with you on that record? Yeah, right? yeah, we we worked together a lot for a long time. So no, I mean, just, you know, we were not we were not. Um, I should say I was not using like the hip players in LA. We had our own group out there of people and, um, and we stuck with that and we did fine always, uh, to this day, several of them still work with me. And, um, and I don't know, we just had our own thing happening. I mean, I came to California after meeting 
this band called Kraken who were on, they weren't on Warner Brothers at the time, but um, I met them in Woodstock when they were struggling and they, they had come from the Midwest and then they moved to Woodstock and then it kind of failed here. And then they went to California and then they got a deal and blah, blah, blah. And when I, um, I always knew that I wanted to record with them at some point, but I had my own band. So it would be inconvenient to do that. And um, when when I left my band, I was lucky that they were now living in L.A. And I, I just contacted them and we just put it together. You know, I mean, it was just like a very homegrown scene and a very small home studio called Alpha. And the only two people that were working in Alpha was a very young prince and myself. Very cool. Yeah, it was cool. Cool times. Yeah. What was he working on at the time? I think he was doing um, Controversy. I think that was the record. Yeah. Okay. That's a great record. So it was back, you know, a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, um, so I read somewhere that you are very popular abroad as well. Is, it, is that accurate? Yeah, there are some some territories where I am. Japan, France are two particularly strong, but also to lesser extent in Scandinavia. Okay. And and so is the genre. See, that's the thing. You get swept in with like they didn't call it yacht rock, and they still don't in those territories. But they called it West Coast. Uh, and okay. if you if you were in that vibe at all, you you got swept in with it. And um, and those fans are really they don't just look at what's on the hit parade. You know, they're they're into like sticking with artists. Yeah. So that's what happened in Japan. I've I performed over in Japan, I don't know, eight eight to ten times. I can't remember the tours all through Japan and France. We've played at beautiful halls like uh, the uh, Casino de Paris and places like that. You know, it's just it's been wonderful. You know, I mean, I, I have to say that um, while I may get tired of talking about Steal Away, when you realize the ride that it's given me, you can't get too tired of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Wayne gives me crap because I, I love Christopher Cross and I know he's big in Japan as well. So, so that's part of, that's part of your, the group that you're talking about, the, that West coast group. Well, anything from Toto to, to, um, Christopher Cross to, um, I mean, some odd, like level 42 there's a, there's a, you know it's a broad spectrum of, of stuff but yeah christopher's done really really well over there they love his music and christopher's a great t- guy and he's going through some tr- struggles right now because he caught the virus oh and, i did not know oh, that wow, and know that. yeah he's, he's had a he's had a pretty hard time and i'm i'm friends with christopher and i first met him when we were nominated together for the grammy in 1981 which he, just, which he won, he cleaned the house. You know, he won like, house. Yeah. I think he got like four or five, and well deserved. He had the he had the numbers. You know. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I still hold that that first Christopher Cross record in high regard. So of course, yeah. you know, and and that's another thing. Like, 
he has to live. I'm not saying that he's suffering for it. I'm just saying he has to live with the fact that once you come out of the box with strong music like that, it's very hard to duplicate. Yeah. Yeah. You know, radio changed after his record hits records and my hit records. Radio really did change. Music changed. And, um, that kind of stuff wasn't really on the air anymore, except on, you know, specialty stations. Yeah. I mean, you brought up Prince uh, right after your, you know, your guys' time on the radio. It became more of a Michael Jackson, Prince, Madonna, sure, Springsteen, and who else was big in the 83 to... Well, Springsteen, you know, he hit earlier, he hit in the 70s, but... Um, you know, born to, I mean, uh, born in the USA, born in the, no, even before that, that was in the eighties. I mean, the East street band and all of that was, that was really popular, like probably like 77, something like around there. But he was such a special case, you know, his, his, his fan base was enormous and it didn't really care about, I wouldn't say it's the same audience, but you know how the Grateful Dead, they don't care if they have a hit or they don't have a hit. They just were fans to the, to the end. And that's how, that's how it is with, with Springsteen. But, but these other, you're right. The dance groups, the flash, you know, aha and, and, you know, flock of seagulls and all of the new, new wave stuff. And, you know, it was a big time for that. And our music, we were sort of at the end of an era the California sound, you know? Yeah. So, so you have continued to put out records. I, I listened to a few of them to, to, to prep for this. Mm-hmm. I really, really enjoyed your record that you did with speaking of Bruce, um, uh, with David, uh, Sanchez. Yeah. The, uh, you mean the, uh, he, I did a lot of records with him, but you mean the one that we did as a, as a duet? Yes. Yeah. Great record. Yeah, that was a really uh, interesting project to do. We did it all in his home studio. How did you guys get hooked up? Well, we met long, long, long ago. Um, He came to Woodstock a little bit after when I came here. And uh, we met because it's a small town. And uh, the first project that we did together was um, in 1987. And... After that, we did. He was on a number of records with me. That duet record, of course, and um, uh, "Smoke and Mirrors" and "Walking on Water" and um, "Time and Tide." That's a lot. Yeah, yeah, we did. We did a lot of work together, and we did a lot of shows together, and traveled together to to Japan and to um, to Europe. Um, on a number of occasions and you know there were periods where like when um, Gabriel or Sting weren't weren't working they weren't touring or recording or anything and then I I had access to him you know a lot at that point I was very lucky because he's such a brilliant brilliant musician yeah he's played with everybody it feels like he sure has yeah yeah As the day wears down This old wicked town Starts to lose its glow
Somehow, all the pretty lights make it look tonight much better than it is. And like a ship out on the ocean, sometimes I just wish. Carried away. Carried away. Let's dive into the record that uh, you wanted to talk about um, before we transition. So we we always ask our guest their opinion of Toto's Africa. Is it a good or bad song? I'm, and I get to ask somebody from that era because usually I'm asking people who are, you know, much younger than mm-hmm. us uh, that question. So what do you think? Your opinion of Toto's Africa, good or bad song? Great record. Not such a great song. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, you just became Wayne's favorite uh, favorite person from the yacht rock era. So, well, I mean, I don't even know what the lyrics are about. Uh, no, but nobody really does. Right, that's what right. I mean. But it's right. it's a killer record. Yeah, it is. I and I just uh, going back to my vinyl obsession. I just got it on record. So, uh, I haven't I haven't spun it yet. I've had it on cassette for since when did it come out? Eighty one, eighty two. What? Toto 4. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, probably 82, I think. Yeah. So I, f- I finally got it on vinyl as well. So It's amazing. And I, I worked with Bobby Kimball, who, who sang it. Right. And um, he was a part of a, a, a couple of small tours with Yacht Rock Review. I oh, forget I- all the forget everybody we had on it. Maybe David Pack and, and Bobby Kimball and myself and somebody else, I think. I can't remember exactly, but yeah, we did a we did a bunch of shows with him. Very cool, very cool. All right, well, we'll tell our listeners what record you chose to revisit for this episode. Nineteen sixty-five, Paul Butterfield Blues Band, self-titled record. And so your song, we 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 didn't cover your 2008 release called Time and Tide. So you have a song called Lucky on that record where you talk about finding Paul, seeing them live in concert. And was this kind of your, your Beatles moment? Yeah, I mean, it, it is. And and um, you have to realize like what it was like to be trying to break in back then. And the, the, the British explosion was happening and the kind of music everybody was playing and the, and the, and the, the look of everybody was very different than the place where I was coming from. You know, I was very street and it was like, you know, a sports jacket and a pair of jeans and a pair of boots. And um, it was just like different than what was going on. So when I went to, um, a friend of mine's house and he had just gotten that record. And when I listened to it, I loved it. And I looked at the cover and I, th- I said, 
those guys look like we look, you know, they're not dressed up. They're just like doing it a certain way. It's hard to really explain that to you, but they were not like showbiz and neither was I, and I've never been. And so when I went to see them, it molded the way I would deal with the next 15 years so of my life with bands with horns in them and concentrating more on the on the blues and R&B side of things and um and when I moved to Woodstock I actually got to uh, to meet and 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 befriend Paul who lived here for many 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 years uh, and he was on Bearsville Records for a long time which was located here and so it was a cultural thing for me it wasn't that I didn't relate to the Beatles or any of the, the groups that were out then, but I just didn't fit in with that scene. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Done a lot of living in my time. Looking back, I guess I've done all right. Brooklyn boy with nothing much to lose. Bought a cheap guitar and learned the 12-bar blues. Caught a show on Bleecker Street one night I heard Paul Butterfield play And it changed my life I got lucky Ooh, I got lucky So they were just much more theatrical with a real effervescent front man and everybody's, you know, the kind of songs they were doing. In the beginning, they were doing songs that were primarily blues based songs, you know, a lot of um, Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and so on, uh, like the Rolling Stones in particular. And then they evolved and wrote their own stuff later on, you know, and I think that's kind of what happened with me. The same, I was not a songwriter, I was a harmonica player and a rhythm guitar player. And then gradually, began singing. It was all out of necessity. You know, the bands broke up every two weeks and you had to do things if you wanted to keep it going. So I became a singer by, de- by default. Right. Right. So, so Wayne, when I told you what, uh, what record Robbie chose, what was your, what was your first reaction to that? Um, well, I, you know, it's a name I'd always heard, but I never, I'd never had sat down and listened to it. Um, but all those, I mean, I, I like the first thing I thought of was John Mayall and the blues breakers. Cause some of those, some of those, those bands at the time kind of mixed yes. for me, but I'd never, I'd never sat down and took a look at it and, and listened to it. So it was, it was a lot of fun in that way, in that regard. Yeah. And it's very, you know, that it was, it's a very primitive record. You know, I mean the, the sound quality, the recording quality, you know, they were, they weren't doing overdubs and production. You know, this was just a raw recorded live kind of deal, which appealed to me at the time. And, um, and it was really the key to opening up the door to me thinking that there'd be a chance for me. Considering that I, I, you know, I listened to your first two, two records because I have both of those in, in the collection. I was trying to like pick out, Okay, where where's the blues influence on Robbie? And I think I hear more of the blues influence on 
the other records not in my collection, the ones that I, I listen to on, on Spotify, because you have you have more of a blues and jazz influence on on your later stuff, but I don't I didn't hear much of the blues on your 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 label um your label records. Yeah, well that's true. I mean that's that was not what I was I was not aiming for that anymore. You know, I'd, I'd done that and, and, uh, and honestly, by the time I moved to California, I felt that a lot of the bands were just cliches that were playing the blues. Uh, and I really didn't want to be a part of that in, anymore. It was yeah. really as a great jumping off ground. It was perfect for me, but um, I knew I wanted to do something else. I remember from 1965 to 1980 was a long, many, many, many miles and many shows and right. many bands involved. I was no overnight sensation, you know, and um, and so I had started to write other other songs. And no, they weren't really blues oriented. Um, I don't think many of them really had a bag at all, you know. Like, what would you call "It's a Feeling" or "Love Is a Mystery" or any of those early songs, they weren't, they weren't straight pop, you know, I don't know what they were, but it was just a beginning. And I thought to be honest about this interview, I'd really talk about not, not like what was my favorite record or, you know, what was the greatest lyric or whatever that I ever production or anything, because it wouldn't have been the Butterfield blues band record. It would have been something else, but I thought for true inspiration, that's the one for me yeah, yeah. so let, let's let's talk a little bit about the, the 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 band itself so paul butterfield he's does he play anything besides the harmonica he just kind of sings well not harmonica. not out not out on 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 gigs or anything like that but yeah he he played a little guitar and some piano but not not out front you know right um but his harmonica playing sort of revolutionized the way people thought about it, it was more like a horn the way he played it, you know? Right. Absolutely. I, yeah, that's something I noticed. I, I was scouring the uh, Wikipedia page cause I could have swore I heard a sax, but as I listened to it, I'm like, that's a harmonic, that guy, he truly uh, just this, this experience. I mean, we've had a couple of records with some great harmonica players, but that was about as good as I've ever heard. Yeah. And, and, and apart from, his great choice in notes and, you know, the way he bend notes besides that, just the way he used the mic and the amp, you know, he played it like a guitar, you know, plugged into a Fender Bandmaster or one, one of the larger Fender amps. And he just had a thing, you know, it was just really inspiring. If you were a harmonic player, um, it did lead to like millions of people becoming harmonica players like that, you know, but never anybody got close to that. You know, he was, he was definitely the one. So, so he was running his harmonica through a bunch of different amps and stuff. So just one, just an amp, but just one, he, uh, okay. but, and a, and a microphone, not the one he sang through, but another mic that it was handheld okay. and the way he had it set up, it just helped to create that sound. Now you could play, the, I could go up and play harmonica in that setting and it wouldn't sound like him. He just had something unique, you know? 
and um, and uh, I haven't heard anybody who played like him. And there are great harmonica players who play wonderful harmonica. The late Toots Steelmans was one of the great chromatic harmonica players. I don't know. And uh, I mean, just ter- terrific players, but not like that. He could okay. get up there in front of a, a band with five horns, like he did in his evolved records later on pig boy crab shaw and and in my own dream and just he could stick right in with the horn section and that was david sanborn and trevor horn and and, and so many great players you know right right so paul's paul's doing that to his harmonica similar to what jimmy page is doing with his guitar then yeah yeah just yeah. red raw right into the mic right into the amp yeah that's cool uh, the rest of the rest of his uh, his group. So well, they uh, became no, some became very notable. Yeah, Elvin Bishop. Uh, yeah, because Elvin Bishop was his rhythm guitar player, and really unknown. And, and he, he didn't he didn't sing for for the Paul Butterfield Blues though, did he? No, but he also didn't sing the big hit. What's it called? What's the huge hit? Fooled, Fooled around, around and, and fell, fell in love. love. Yeah, that's Mickey Thomas. Oh, okay. That's Mickey singing, and and um, did you know that Wayne? I, I didn't did know not that. know that. I did not know that. You guys got to call me more often. This is what's <laughs> going on. You need a you need inside counseling. Um, yeah, um, Mickey Thomas, who's probably still one of the greatest singers ever in in uh, pop and rock, just oh, yeah. incredible cat. He was the one who sang on that, and then Mike Bloomfield who was the guitar yeah. player, the lead guitar player. Amazing. And also a revolutionary cat who played with Bob Dylan and everybody wanted to be with Mike Bloomfield. He started a whole style of, I think it was, the best way to put it was, it was like blues, but with like a raga vibe to it. You know, just the, the, the tonalities that he used and the, and the, the intervals that he played and it was just trend setting. He, he unfortunately died very, very young. Um, he was into drugs heavily and he died. He passed away. Sam lay and, and Jerome Arnold made up the rhythm section and they did not go on to be, um, famous in their own right, but they were terrific together. And then, um, Mark Naftalin played, keyboards organ mostly and he was terrific and he's still around i think he lives in chicago now but he was a, uh, you know another great addition to the band and he had more more to play than he did on the record when they got to do live you know he got more active did i read correctly that jerome and sam lay were part of howling wolves they were and that's how that's how paul found them because paul you know, grew up in Chicago and, and as I was inspired by him, he was inspired by them, you know, and this was an opportunity for him to work with this known commodity of guys that he felt were legendary. The public maybe didn't know who they were, but they were great. Yeah. Let's go. So let's go back to, to 65. So um, I mentioned before we started recording that we, we did uh, an episode on John Hammond's Country Blues, which was around that same time um, as well. And 
that particular record, there's no John Hammond original compositions. So all, all of the songs are done by these legendary blues guys. There's probably a Howling Wolf song, if I remember correctly, uh, on that record. And this particular record, the the debut from from Paul's band, um, takes a lot of of standard blues songs from all these legends as well. In the in the early to mid sixties, were were these blues bands just trying to um, keep the torch going or were they trying to do something a little bit different? Because there's only, I think there's only what two or three original songs by the band on this record. If I, if I remember, Mm -hmm. and I think they're the, they're the instrumentals. Well, there's, there's one, um, our love is drifting. Yeah. That Paul wrote with Alvin. That's right. Okay. You know, I, I wasn't with them, so I don't know their motivations. But I think similarly to my story, I think they started playing the stuff they knew. Right. And, and, and as time went on, Paul's talent developed. You know, he, he grew. And in later albums, he wrote some great songs, but he still drew back to, to like – other writers and got involved with Willie Mitchell, who was um, a great arranger. And he just, he just wanted to take it as far as he could take it within the restrictions of what it was. You know, it is, it is what it is when you play blues harmonica and all of that, you're not going to make a pop record. So, so you're always a cult artist, no matter how big you get. And finally, after, 50 years or whatever, he finally got, the band finally got inducted into the Hall of Fame, like, was it a year ago? Yeah, two years ago, maybe, after after 50 years. And it's because they were recognizing not only, there wasn't any particular song, it wasn't about hit records or anything, they were recognizing the impact that he had on on music and musicians. And, and as a band leader, the kind of people that were discovered from his group, you know, which were many. Right. Right. Yeah. I would, I would, I would think that if you ask the normal music fan, um, n- name me a Paul Butterfield blues song, they probably would have a hard time. Just like, I know I did. Wayne, did you, did you, could you have mentioned one song? Not until, not until now. I could now. Right. Yeah, well I mean that's that's one of the problems with with the way it's it's become in in years past. I mean not like it was in years past. I think that the audience in general was much better educated to all kinds of music. For example, when I was a young guy and I went to the Fillmore East the shows would be tremendously varied. There were always three acts, and it could be like B.B. King, Joni Mitchell, and Sun Ra. And do you know who Sun Ra was? Uh, the, well, the, it, yeah. it, a very, very avant-garde, outside jazz 
act, you know, really right. wild. And um, he was to jazz what uh, the Funkadelics were to funk, you know. Okay. And so when you when you went to the show, you may have been going to to see Joni Mitchell, but you got BB King and you got Sun Ra, right. or any or any of the various combinations. And I found at the end of that that in those days a record collection was just all over the place, you know, like every kind of music that was represented then was in everybody's vinyl collection, you know, from the cream and Jimi Hendrix to, to Paul Butterfield blues band and Joni Mitchell and, you know, all things that really had nothing to do with each other, but somehow the fans just loved music a lot. And that's how the billing on the festivals was so varied. Yeah. You know, when you think about it, you can't do that anymore. So, so you brought up Cream. So, Cream is from around that same time period. Absolutely. And why is it that everybody knows Cream? Is it just because of of Eric? That's the reason why they they can remember a couple songs. Because, like, when I hear the first song on the record, um, "Born in Chicago," I I hear. You can you can definitely hear Robert Johnson in that because that's a Robert Johnson song, and Cream was heavily influenced by Robert Johnson as well. I was born in Chicago in 1941. I was born in Chicago in 1941. Well, my Son, you had better get a gun Well, my first friend went down When I was 17 years old Well, my first friend went down When I was 17 years old Well, there's one thing I can say about that boy I guess my question is why why do people remember cream why do you still hear cream on like the 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 classic rock station because cream was pop even though it doesn't seem like it in what we think of pop today but cream was a pop band cream had sunshine of your love you know and and also because people were going deeper into album cuts people really loved depends on what album you're talking about but like on the first album there were I feel free mm-hmm. was like a huge listening record, yeah, you know that. That's a pop song. Yeah, and and people loved that stuff, you know. And they went deep into the album, and everybody listened to an album from top to bottom. It wasn't like today where they do a shuffle, and it doesn't matter. Like then, things really were put together in a certain way for a certain reason. You took a long time to sequence a record, and I think that people. Uh, Loved it. Paul was a little more esoteric. He didn't have any pop songs. You know, he was straight out playing and singing the blues and putting his own spin on it. But nonetheless, it was blues. Yeah, that makes sense. Considering that, you know, like I like I said, this 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 record is full of blues standards, and and you're saying that in in subsequent records, he kind of stayed true to that tone. He had, yeah, he got more of his own 
music um, in there, but he still enjoyed the authenticity of, of having, yeah. you know, maybe they were a little bit more arranged as well. As I remember, uh, Drifting and Drifting was one that had a beautiful horn track for it. So, I mean, he, while it may have been originally a classic blues artist song, by the time his band evolved and his talent evolved, so did the music and and um, they were slicker. They were recorded better. Yeah, his singing was better. You know, it was it was great. You know, as far as I'm concerned, he's right in there with Clapton and those people. And you know, when I got to Woodstock, Clapton, George Harrison, Butterfield, the band, all of them used to hang out at Levon's house. Levon was the drummer and one of the singers for the band. Absolutely. And um, that was a that was a hang, you know, that whole crew was coming in and out of town all the time. Yeah. And I think we haven't, we hit, we said we, you were in New York, but you live in Woodstock. I do, but I grew up in Brooklyn and I lived in Manhattan and then moved to New York. I mean, to Woodstock, New York. There just has to be this legacy there. Yeah. Well, you know, that was the thing. Like, I, I I wanted to get out of the city. It was really tough in the city at that point in time, crime and drugs, and it really gotten overboard. And where I was living on, up uptown was getting more and more dangerous for me to like try to bring my instruments in the house, and you know it got funky. So I knew that there was a scene in Woodstock going on, and I thought maybe I'll get get an opportunity to you know, raise up the game a little bit. And so I went there and I met great musicians and I got an education. Yeah. Like it was like going to music school. All right. So just for, just for a second to going back yeah. to the sophistication of the audience. I mean, it's easy today to see how things turned out. But when you think about a band who dressed like they walked out of a photograph from the early 1900s, and they sang songs about the Civil War. You wouldn't exactly want to sign a band like that, but that was what the band was all about. And the audience embraced them completely. You know what I mean? If you listen to that, are you familiar with the band's music? Yeah, absolutely. Think about those songs, yeah. you know, about... There's a lot of, lot of layers to, to them. Exactly. But, you know, you couldn't go to a record company today with something like that and expect to get a deal. It's just not, that's not what they're selling anymore. They're selling, you know, mass millions of streaming and downloads. And it's not that kind of a culture any longer, you know. So when I came to Woodstock, that culture was very much alive. And um, even though I wasn't really making records or anything, I was was there playing in local clubs and doing my thing and building my own stuff, you know. Right. So what what are some of the the standout tracks on this on this record for for you? Because like uh, you know I I I've listened to it a couple times and I mean my 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 go to is the the second track "Shake Your Money Maker."
That's a good one. I, I liked I liked some other ones as just as much though. I like blues with a feeling a lot. Um, I liked uh, Mystery Train, the Junior Parker song. Yeah. Yes. Um, I also like the uh, the Willie Dixon Mellow Down Easy. Mellow Down Easy. Yeah, there was a lot of you know within that like half of the songs within that. Were, were really strong and some of the stuff you could tell was uh they weren't thinking about trying to make a hit record you know like um mr poobah the instrumental you know that was just like bloomfield having a field day with playing you know establishing screaming um was another one so it, it's a little bit all over the place in terms of a and r you know what I mean? Picking the songs and what, what it was. But that was that was his outing. That was his first record. I think it was on, uh, was it on Electra? I, I don't even remember, but it was, or Verve. It was on, like almost like on a folk label at the time. And that's that's where, it, that's the, the pocket that that music was coming from, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you brought up, um, thank you, Mr. Poobah. So, that was the the first original song on the record, and every time I hear Poobah, I think of the Flintstones. <laughs> yeah. You guys remember that? The, yeah, the, the, the water buffalo, the royal order of water buffalo. Exactly. exactly. That's funny. Yeah. That's funny. Um, anyways, that's. The, I wonder if the uh, song pre predated the cartoon. I don't know. I probably should have done some research on that just to just to check, but. Here, here's another thing. So when I Googled Poobah, so the one other thing that came up was Howard Cunningham from The Happy Days was also in the Loyal Order of the Water Buffaloes. And they brought up, somebody said that there was a Mr. Poobah in that show as well. <laughs> so, and, okay. that's, and that's from the 50s. So I guess that kind of makes sense, maybe. Exactly. When you're thinking about a title for an instrumental song, you could do anything you want. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Yeah. You don't have to explain it too much. No, not at all. No. We're doing a lot more thinking about it than he ever oh, did. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> What about the Muddy Water song? I got my mojo working. Well, that's, you know, that's, that's a classic that every yeah. single body that's ever played in a blues band has played. And it is great. I mean, you know, here's 
Paul's version of it was great. He played it with he played it with Muddy for the time that he worked with him. He played it all the time, so he really was um, an heir to the song, if you will. Um, he he played with a lot of those cats that were the genuine article out of out of Lake Park and you know Chicago um, South Side stuff, you know and. Uh, pretty amazing history behind behind that and him and he never really got a chance to fully realize all that he could have done but he did a lot in those in those um interim records that happened uh, there were like two or three of them that were really really great then there were a lot of things that could have put him over further but they didn't happen and I never understood it like Albert Grossman was his manager okay. and and Albert let him play with his band the Woodstock Festival but he wouldn't let him be in the movie. Oh. None of none of the acts that he had that did the show were allowed there was no deal made between Albert and Michael Lang and so their performances pretty much went unnoticed where if you were in that, people are still watching it tonight. You know what I mean? Yeah. That that kind of cements your, if you do a great show and it's on for the next 50 years, you, uh, you gain from that, you know, reputation-wise. Now nobody even would know that he was on it. Yeah. I didn't even, re- I didn't realize that he was an Albert Grossman client. Everybody that was in Woodstock was kind of tied up with him. Yeah. You know, the band, Janice, Peter, Paul, and Mary. Did you Um, see the Scorsese uh, documentary about Bob Dylan? I did. I loved it. Because he even, Dylan even brings up kind of, I can't remember what he said, but he kind of likened Grossman to Elvis's Colonel Parker. Colonel Parker. Yeah, he yeah. did. Yeah. Well, you know, th- Albert had a vision that a lot of people still have never um, completely understood how how incredible his view was. He didn't sign pop things and make them famous. He signed things that he believed in and made them famous. The yeah. band, yeah. Bob Dylan, Janis Joplin. I mean, it's all history now. You can look back and say, oh, I would have signed Bob Dylan. But he was ridiculed when he came out. You probably weren't even old enough to know. Oh, but no. he, he, <laughs> he came out and, you know, people were making fun of the way he sang, you know, popular singers and Johnny Carson and people like, oh, you know, it was, it was a joke. But not to Albert. And yeah. Bob Dylan single-handedly changed the way people wrote songs in America. Absolutely. The rhyme scheme went out the window. Yeah. Yeah. So he was he was maybe like Tom Parker in, in the sense that he he he, he had a, a big show going on, but unlike Colonel Parker, he he didn't let his musicians or artists sell out. He didn't have them making, you know, um, movies about the big top and uh, you know what I mean Elvis got Elvis went from being a rebel that they wouldn't show below the waist to being kind of a clown 
in these terrible movies like having a wild weekend and stuff like that. You know, it's just yeah. kind of sad. Beach blanket bingo. Well, he wasn't in that, but that's okay. the that's the general. But that's the general. Yeah. Roused about, and you know, they were just awful. You know, and um, it it kind of killed his legitimacy as an artist. He yeah. still was popular, but that thing that he had in those early records, like Heartbreak Hotel and all of that, he was a blues influenced artist in those early records. You know, he did Big Mama Thornton's song. Uh, you ain't nothing but a hound dog. Right. That was her. That was her song. Yeah. All right. So what? What else on this debut record do we want to talk about? Do we want to talk about any of the Walter Jacob songs? Little Walter. Little Walter. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, he's on there. What? Two or three times? At least twice. Yeah. Well, last night I, I just remember that I don't have the album, and I don't even have the album anymore. Um, but last night was. A great that was a great song and a great version of it. Last night I lost the best friend I ever had. You know, it's just um, those songs were steeped in a different kind of understanding of the world. You know, like people say we're all in the same boat. Well, no, we're all in the same storm, but we're not all in the same boat. You know, and those guys were definitely in a different boat. They were. They were poor and working hard and in bad health, and they had really tough lives and tough careers. And um, and we were we, the next generation, had a much easier time of of life in general. You know. Yeah. 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 So I loved last night. I thought that was beautiful. Anything else on any of the the well the songs on the I record? would say the one I I, I loved the version of Mystery Train, which um, right every you know is I think typically associated with Elvis, but I I love mm-hmm. there's a, a secondary percussion he's used. I, it almost sounds like he's hitting a bottle with the drumsticks. It gives this just creates this clickety clack of a train, which I thought was just, right. just brilliant. <laughs> yeah. But in general, that's it. That one was my my favorite track. In fact, that that's my favorite version of that song. Train. 
And he did that song for decades. I mean, that became one of the songs that he sort of never appeared without doing it. Um, maybe if he was promoting a record or something, but even in, um, did you see the last waltz? Yes. Yeah. It's been, been a number of years <laughs> since I have. Yeah. He does it in that. Okay. And, yeah. um, I got to go watch that. Yeah, with Levon Helm playing drums and, you know, it's, it's a, it's a very all-star band, but it's incredible. And, and that, you know, he just had a way of, when he played it with any band, he brought that same thing to the band, you know, and, and made it his. And that, that was a, a power of being a real artist. Yeah. Well, cool. Thanks for, uh, thanks for bringing this up. Thanks for, you betcha. thanks for chatting about this. Um, what, what are, what are some of the other records that are, that were instrumental to you and in, in kind of forging and molding you into the musician that you are? Well, there were a lot of different artists. I don't sound like any of them, but I mean, I loved Marvin Gaye and, um, and, and earlier I loved Sam Cooke. Um, and there were females like Aretha Franklin and just that R and B thing was my thing, not the rock and pop thing at all. Yeah. And that, that was the stuff that I, Stevie wonder, of course, you know, I think like inner visions might be the greatest record ever made. You know, it's just things that I, that I loved. And when you're in a particular headspace about music, even though you listen to all, and I loved Hendrix and I loved, you know, I loved Cream, and I loved a lot of the bands of the time, even going back to like the Animals and the Yardbirds, they were all very different and special. But I, I seem to always come back to the, to the powerful vocals of the, of the uh, R&B artists. So that I would say was what I always wished I could have sounded like, <laughs> you know, but I didn't. <laughs> Uh, you got a little soul in, in in your music for sure. Yeah, but you know what I mean. There's, uh, there's, yeah, yeah. There are levels, you know, and uh, yeah. you can sing forever and never get close to Stevie. No, you you brought up a bunch of legends there. So I I went through a, a little bit of a Stevie Wonder kick last night. Uh, my wife was was listening to some of his stuff, and I threw on Hotter Than July. Oh boy. You know, I know it's not one of his "quote unquote" best records, I, but, but I loved it. I yeah. love it. Yeah, I love it. Well, I thought that was um, "Hotter Than July" was a, a great, great record with great stuff on it. You know, and that that whole period. I mean, starting with "Music of My Mind," and then "Talking Book," and <sighs> you know, book. yeah, they were just for how do you say it? For Philness first finale. Another another great record, Inner Visions. You know, there was a period there of about 15 years where he just killed it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So special. Yeah. Well, cool, Robbie. This has been great. Yeah, thanks, you guys. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. So tell all of our listeners where they can find all of your happenings. Well, all my stuff is on um, the typical streaming itunes and apple and all of that and for for 
hard copy records, they can go to my website, which is RobbieDupree.com. And for live shows, when all this horrible mess is over with, we'll be back out playing um, in L.A. and on the East Coast. And uh, that'll be posted on my website as well. So stay in touch. Got it. Got it. All right, you guys. Be cool. Stay healthy. Oh, you too, Robbie. Thanks so so much. So as a reminder, you can find all of our old episodes. Just go to Records Revisit Podcast. Find all of our happenings on our socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Thanks for listening. Please go support the arts. Go to a live show whenever we can get back out there. But in the meantime, go check out all the live stuff that your favorite musicians are doing on Instagram or Facebook or the YouTubes. Uh, go, go support your, your local musicians. Uh, buy a t-shirt of the band. Buy a record. We are Records Revisited, and we are... Out. Out. out.